Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Turn in your Bibles now to the letter of 1 Peter. That's what we've been studying for the most part of this semester. We're coming to the close here. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 if you want to look there. So beginning in verse 12, uh, Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we do ask now that you would come and you would attend it. Uh, We know that your word is is living and active and abiding. And we pray that you would come and you would make us to live and act and abide according to it. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 1 Peter is about a living hope for holy living when that life, the holy life, is especially hard. And Peter's told us it it really can be excruciating at times. So so much so, he believes he does best to hold out the cross of Jesus as our example for it. Remember that in chapter 2. Fiery trials are not for the faint of heart. Though we do so often feel faint along this exilic Way Temptations and signs of turnaround on every side, it seems, with slander and unjust abuses and cutoffs and insults typically attending that way. And, and, and all of that comes upon us from time to time for doing good 
for doing good, in keeping with our divine calling to share and to showcase the truth and grace of the gospel that saved us. And we hear that, and all of that may sound nice to us, but what we're seeing in this letter is that our enduring faithfulness in this calling promises much difficulty in the world. And so comes this frequent and necessary reminder, beloved, you got to keep on going unashamedly for Jesus. Follow Him and don't fall back. Endure to the end. There's a point for a Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, just after he's been relieved of the burden that was on his back, that he continues up a section of the narrow way called the Hill Difficulty where with much difficulty he makes his way toward the palace beautiful. I think it's a, some imagery for the church there, the palace beautiful. Uh, but on account of the difficulty, he stops to rest. And the rest turns into sleep, and the sleep he has proves very, very costly for him. You see, upon believing, uh, Christian had received three things. He had received forgiveness of his sins. He had received a new coat symbolizing uh, the righteousness of Christ that covers us. And he had received a roll or a scroll to put in his coat pocket nearest his heart. And this roll or scroll uh, had his name inked upon it. And it symbolized his assurance of new and eternal life. And well, when the difficulty set him to dozing, the scroll fell out of his pocket. So that when he awoke and pressed forward, he did so without that assurance, which left him dreadfully fretful and anxious and unsure. And haven't we all felt this? How difficulty in the way of Christ can make us doubtful of the way, can make us doubtful of ourselves and our relationship to Christ, can even make us doubtful of our faithful God, who He is. Well, Christian, he doubles back to find this scroll, and he finds it. He finds it, and then he humbly marches on in the full assurance of faith for all of the difficulties that of necessity lay in front of him towards the celestial city. And this is what Peter does for us this morning. This is what Peter does for us this morning. Admitting of all kinds of difficulties, Peter doubles back to give us assurance so that we can forge ahead with Jesus in all faith and all joy. Sticking with the pilgrim's progress, Peter wants us to be like the valiant man who's seeing an army of enemies between him and the gate of the kingdom is undeterred. He says, put down my name. And then he puts on all his armor and he begins to just violently and victoriously hack his way through everything that stands between him and the gate of the kingdom. Beloved, you remember what the word says, through, not around, but through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Just after that, Paul says, we must continue in the faith. This is what he taught the church in, in Lystra just after he had been stoned within an inch of his life for Jesus. The chief of graces 
is endurance. And every true Christian will thus endure. And thankfully, not without many, many helps along the way. And so, to our text. Let's see that we must endure, in what manner we must endure, why we must endure, and then how we must endure as Christians. So first, let's see that we must endure as a Christian. Peter writes, if you look at verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So a bit, of, a bit of repetition here and in what follows from Peter, and there's a lesson in it for us that every good parent and every good teacher understands and every forgetful child of God needs to understand. There is love in things repeated. There is love in things repeated. Uh, just because we've already heard something does not mean we've learned how to consistently apply it. Just because we've covered ground does not mean that we've mastered it. And even if we have, we're prone, it seems, to play the novice. And Peter, then, loving this church, calling them beloved at the beginning of our passage, finds it worthwhile to repeat himself on the matter of handling adversity as a Christian. There is a song called, When Trials Come. I imagine it's built upon passages like this one. It goes, when trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near. To fire a faith worth more than gold, and there his faithfulness is told. A useful song. And one that points us first, as our text, to the inevitability, the inevitability of a suffering peculiar to those who keep in step with Jesus. Everyone suffers in this world. Only the Christian tends to suffer for Christianity. And that's a kind word that really does need to confront our walks. That instead of surprising us, we should count suffering for Christ as standard to a public and practical faith in him. It's not reserved for some souped-up version of Christianity. It's typically tied to what the Bible understands to be a basic Christianity that is nonetheless threat enough to draw the ire of the world around it. You just be faithful to Jesus. Be really, truly, lastingly faithful to Jesus. Trial will come. And that's where we have to ask ourselves, are we living so openly for Christ that the world, living in its little vacuum of sin, even feels the need to respond against us? Or are they generally at ease around us? Not because we've related to them so graciously, but because we've lined up with their MOs so practically. Are we light amid the dark? Are we salt amid the decay? Are we truth amid error? Are we godliness amid godlessness? Are we the church in the world? You remember chapter 4, verse 4? 
So Peter said there's a flood of debauchery. The world is just all in that. Flood of debauchery. And it's surprising, to use the word in our passage, surprising to the world when we don't join them in it. Are we surprising in this way to our social circles? If we are, Peter says, we ought not be surprised when the trial comes. Beloved, it's only when we're strangers to Jesus, practically speaking, that such trial will be strange to us. The deal at conversion, we need to understand, the deal at conversion was not Christ and comfort in the world. It was Christ and a cross that ends in glory. That was the deal. So, where Christianity is really vibrant, suffering will be inevitable. It's to be expected, Peter says here. And we must then ready ourselves to endure it, not as the world might, but as Christians must. For only those who do so to the end, Jesus says, will be saved. Will prove to be genuine articles. And it's to move us in that direction that Peter continues. And we're brought to see the manner in which we're to endure as Christians. Picking up, if you look there, in verse 13. Uh, Peter writes this. He says, but rejoice. So do not be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Uh, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, two things ought to mark us as we step through suffering for Jesus. And the first is distinctly Christian joy. Do not be surprised, Peter says, but insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that is, you suffer as a Christian in identification with Jesus, do rejoice. And we sort of want to have a word with Peter and Jesus, by the way, and say, rejoice? Like, really? Rejoice? How am I supposed to pull off joy when I'm being trampled down? By being dead to reality? No. But by actually being alive to it, we're going to see. By trying to deaden the pain? No. But by preaching the point it's meant to make. Listen, we are not Stoics. Nor do we seek or take pleasure in pain. But we do feel pain. We do show sorrow. We do grieve and weep as necessary. And it's just that we do so we do so in light of our union with Christ. You see it in verse 13. And God's communion with us. You see that in verse 14. So that 
In trial, Christian joy is ever-present and available to us. Let me explain. As a Christian, you know the outcome of Jesus' sufferings. You just go read the Gospels. Go read the Gospels and you'll see His pain. All the way to death on a cross. Funny thing is this. None of the Gospels end at the cross. They end with an empty tomb. Christ's sufferings were the necessary prelude to His exalted glory. So beloved, the cross of Jesus was not the loss of Jesus. It was His victory. It was His victory. And Peter's saying, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you will also share in His what? His glory. The things we suffer for Jesus, if they really are for Jesus, only assure us we're on the winning side. That we're in the narrow way that leads to life. That what we affirm now of Him, that He lives forever, will no less be made out to us in due time. If we rejoice to identify now at cost with Jesus, we will rejoice, Peter says, at last when Jesus appears in glory to identify with us as His people. It will be worth it in the end. And not only in the end. Not only in the end. You see Peter's new thought in verse 14? We don't just rejoice to share in Christ's sufferings because in this we find ourselves united to Jesus and His future glory. But Peter adds something. He says, we rejoice just so because God comes with comfort in the moment. Help isn't just found in a future prospect, however sure and awesome that is. But it's found in God, who the Bible tells us is an ever present help in times of trouble. If for Christ you are insulted, Peter here does not say, as he said before, you will be blessed. What does he say? He says, you are blessed. And you are blessed, he says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so this is a peculiar ministry of the Holy Spirit to comfort His doubting and downcast ones. And how comforting that is. I might have told you before, I'm sure you have your own similar stories, but uh, when my grandfather was dying, uh, he was in a lot of pain and uh, was, was greatly disturbed. And uh, while the pain uh, no doubt remained, the disturbance left as Jenny uh, came to him, his bedside, and began to sing to him his favorite hymn. It was quite a, a ministry of presence. And on the other hand, is it not a very disturbing thought how many have died in our day in pandemical isolation from just such a ministry? 
Why is Job so hard for us to stomach? Not because of God's absence, but because of the absence of true comforters. But what a great word then Peter gifts to us here that whether a person has a people to comfort them or not, if you, if they are a Christian, they have the comforter. And he comes to them and rests upon them. And Peter's point is this, beloved. Your suffering for Christ does not indicate the absence of God from you. Far from it. It assures you of His presence. A bruised reed He will not break continues today through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Notably called here the Spirit of glory and of God. Why that? Why that? Well, again, probably to assuage us in our doubts. When someone says something unkind about you, when they say something that's maybe untrue, uh, when someone says something unbecoming of you because of your obedience to Jesus, for that's what Peter has in mind here, more verbal assault, not uncommon today, increasingly common, I would say, today, when that happens, we find two doubts. Is God for me after all? Because it does not feel like it. And am I an heir of glory after all? I need to know because being fitted for a cross makes fitting in with the world really appealing. And so, so wonderful, the spirit of glory and of God comes and rests on you. In perfect gentleness, He assures our hearts in this suffering, God is yet for you. How can I know that? You can know that because the one with you now in the suffering is the Spirit of God. And likewise in this suffering, you yet most definitely hold a stake in glory. And how can I know that? You can know that because the one with you in the suffering is also not only the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of glory. Beloved, this same Spirit rested upon our Lord so that in lieu of all He would suffer, it was clear from the outset that He was God's what? Beloved Son, no matter what His suffering said to the world around Him. And how needful was this once the colors of His ministry turned black and blue? What assurance and comfort do you think Christ drew from this ministry of the Spirit? And Peter is now saying to us, through Christ, such is the Spirit's ministry to you. To confirm you in the trial as God's beloved heir of eternal glory. And therefore, rejoice! And stand firm. We're not only to endure with distinctly Christian joy, but also with a distinctly Christian resolve. 
To be sure, Peter tells us, uh, don't suffer for, for doing wrong. Don't suffer for being like the thief on the cross. Don't do things that the world should and God would rightly penalize. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't be an evildoer. Don't be a meddler. Support life, be content, do good, and in general, live a peaceable life. Peter cares because God cares, and therefore we should care to practice the faith and grace that we preach. But now, if we're doing that, and in the course of it, we are shamed for it, yes, let your hearts rejoice, but also let them be immovable. Our society today has, has very much rediscovered shaming as a way of prosecuting and persecuting. And indeed, Peter says, we can expect to be shamed for Jesus. But here he also says, we're never to be ashamed. Of him. We're never to allow the fear of man's opinion to move us off of the truth of God's gospel. Jesus goes so far as to say, listen, it will be impossible to believe in him and to keep on going with him where we're concerned more about the praise of man than the praise of God. There is a Godward steal in living faith. It will not crumple under man's threats. No. It will receive the devil's worst, know it's all for the best, find fortitude in the fiery trial, and adorn the name of Jesus all the more. We don't go back with the culture. We go forward with Christ. We glorify God, Peter says, in that name. Right, beloved, if you give an inch today on biblical truth, it may be a mile tomorrow. And next thing you know, you've been shamed out of a credible Christian faith so far as the Bible judges it. So we need to grow to be like Peter. We need to grow to be like Peter who received so much grace from Jesus. Remember, he denied him three times. We need to grow to be like Peter when before those who would silence the gospel, before those who would order a cease and desist against the ministry of the gospel, Peter hears their threats, he counts the cost, and he stood unashamed of Jesus still, and he spoke back to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But listen, we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. And as you know, not much later, Peter was beaten for that very resolve. At which, to come full circle, what did he do? He rejoiced at being counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. 
And every day it says, and all over the place, he did not cease preaching Jesus as the Christ unashamed. But Peter's not a Pharisee, teaching heavy burdens he's unwilling to bear in this passage. He's a model of the manner in which we must endure with Christian joy and resolve. So now let's come to the grounding of the matter. Let's come to the grounding of it. Why must we endure unjust suffering for Christ as Christian? This is how Peter pins it down for us if you look at verses 17 and 18. He says, for all of that, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We must endure unjust suffering for Christ as Christians because it appears that is, listen, an indispensable part of an authentic faith in Jesus. We have not experienced a lot of pressure from our greater Clemson society to recant the gospel or to take back the truth that we've uttered or to deny Jesus or else. But that doesn't mean the pressure can't be quickly increased as it seems to be doing and that the intensity of that squeeze can't tempt us then to cry uncle. But the true Christian, the true church will not tap out, will not budge, will not fold, or if so, go long without a heartbroken contrition and repentance over doing so. In this, Christ's true sheep are bold as lions. Like the valiant man, we let nothing stand between us and that final, full embrace of Jesus. We endure what we must to be true to Jesus. And that's essential because... God can spot a fake. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin. And where does it begin? Perhaps not where we thought it would. It doesn't start at the door of the world. It starts at the door of the church. It begins at the household of God with His spiritual house. Chapter 2, verse 5, you may remember. Now what do you mean, Peter, that the judgment that's to overtake the world begins at 827 Old Greenville Highway? If you don't know what that is, that's our address. <clears throat> well, I think he means that no matter how buttoned up we are in being a believer's church, the Lord knows that not all who call him their Lord are truly his people. There will be those who wear the name well enough to pass our bar of prudence, 
who will not pass God's distinct attribute of omniscience. God knows the truth. God knows our hearts. And one way He enables us to know our hearts is by giving us opportunities and particularly trials in which we can not turn back, not cave, not deny Christ, but affirm again and again and again to the end our love and faith and hope in Christ. It's by sharing in Christ's sufferings and enduring them as a Christian. Many can look faithful when all is daisies and roses with Jesus. But the truth of our hearts is proven most when the world comes looking for its pound of flesh. Will we prove, church, to be remade in that moment and day of a divine metal? We prove to be remade of a faith that's more precious than gold because though tested by fire, it lasts, it abides, it endures. God knows that faith because that faith came from God. Do we have it? Take stock of yourself as I take stock of myself. And I beloved, listen, we, we know and rejoice that if we be true, our judgment in the sense of condemnation, it's already behind us. It's not in front of us. Right? Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. His blood is on the doorpost of our hearts. He has made us safe. But just because we're free from condemnation doesn't appear mean that we're free from God's accounting of us as Christians. Praise God, the blood of Christ sticks to us. But are we sticking with it? It's done everything for us, but will we do what we've been called to do by 1 Peter for it? This is not fundamentalism. Just in case you were thinking, it might be. We're not talking about salvation by works. We're talking about authentication by works. And here specifically, enduring all manner of difficulty that comes to us for Jesus. And that's what Peter means, by the way, when he says the righteous is scarcely saved. You ever just read that and gone, what? Oh my goodness. Another probably better translation is that the righteous are saved with difficulty. With difficulty. He means what Jesus means when Jesus himself says, remember, the gate is narrow and the way is smooth and easy. No. Hard that leads to life, and those who find it are both billions and few. 
He doesn't mean believers barely make it to glory. He means those who do make it to glory have gone through fires. They've encountered many difficulties and they have endured them to the end. As one depicted it, quote, our course as Christians is like a dangerous sailing between many rocks and exposed to many storms and tempests. And thus no one arrives at the port except he or she who has escaped from a thousand deaths. Many turn back. The Christian will not. That's Peter's point. The corollary to it is pointed for the unbeliever also. Those who do not obey the gospel of God. And perhaps Peter has in mind even those who do not finally withstand the pressure. He says, you're outside the house. You're not in the house, you're outside of the house. The blood of Christ only covers those within the house. And if they are exposed for their good, to many difficulties in this world, what, Peter asks, will become of those outside the house, the ungodly and the sinner in the world that's coming? If God does not spare His children in Christ, the loving rod of purifying discipline, what will it be to suffer God's just and all-consuming wrath forever? Unbelieving friend, you don't want to find out. And we do not want you to either. There is an eternal opposite of the living hope that the Christian has. It's called hell in the Bible. It's reserved for all who live and die rejecting this king and his grace. Please don't reject this King and His grace. Trust in Jesus. You do that, He will save you. And He will do it right now, and He will keep you all the way to the end. And well, if you have believed, judgment begins at the household of God. And He's looking for genuine articles. And that is why we must endure suffering for Christ as a Christian. Which brings us to our close. How will we endure as Christians? How are we going to do it? Peter writes verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And there it is. A succinct reminder. We endure the fiery trial. We endure the shaming, the slandering, the reviling, the injustices, the insults, the same way Jesus did. When He suffered all of this and more on His cross. 
Do you remember what did Peter say in chapter 2, verse 23, but that rather than respond to the world the way the world responded to him, rather than take it all back to spare himself, our Lord played the lamb and continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the basic path of Christian endurance. Although Peter does give it some notable nuance here. He says, it's entrust your what? Your souls to a faithful creator. Beloved, it is quite possible that in the way of obedience to Christ, your body comes to harm. I read of a missionary the other day, Helen Rosevere. She served Christ in Zaire, Africa as a medical missionary doctor. When an evil regime overtook the nation leading directly to her torture for six months. And it was when she had nearly come to the end of herself that she was overtaken by a sense of God's presence, as in our verse 14, Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. And this was the thought that came to her as if from Him. Quote, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? <laughs> These are not your sufferings. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. <laughs> How can you endure that kind of loan? By knowing your soul is in safekeeping. By knowing Christ forbids any harm come to it. By knowing your salvation is on lockdown. And that your body also will one day too be raised up. By believing that your Father God is the faithful creator of all. He is not unable nor ever disabled from making good on all that He has promised you. All that He has promised you in Jesus. That living hope is not a fairy tale. And it is not a lost cause. Ever. It is real. And it's right in front of you. And so you, Christian. Keep on doing God's kind of good, Peter says. Endure. Be enduring by entrusting. If need be, suffer as a Christian by believing your soul is in the very best of hands, even those hands that were nailed to a cross for you in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can trust Him. Beloved, the hill difficulty will find us sooner or later. It's, it's on the way. It's on the way to the city of God. And near it, doubts await in the shadows. Doubts about the way. Doubts about ourselves. Doubts even about our God. So Peter writes to us this morning 
to reassure us. He doubles back to help us. The way to life is the hard one that you're in. Endurance in it is an evidence of grace in you. And amid the fiery trial, God always remains the faithful creator committed in Christ to your eternal good. So don't turn back. Keep on going joyfully and unashamedly for Jesus. Be enduring by entrusting. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. What a precious gift to us. Make it to live in us. Make us your people in truth who endure to the end in all grace and joy and resolve for your greater glory. And as we come to sing now, it is well with my soul. Help us to do it with all our hearts in thankfulness to you for all that you have done for us to make us your own people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.